Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. In this endless lockdown, there's not much to be cheerful about, especially for, for parents and kids, except, of course, one thing. School is out, uh, which isn't good for teachers, isn't good for kids, isn't good for parents. But it is good for the fact that we haven't had in the last three months any mass killings, any Stoneman Douglases, any Parklands, uh, any Sandy Hooks, which is one reason to be very cheerful in, in, in the gloom of the coronavirus. And uh, one of the consequences of this absence of mass killings is that we haven't had any big public debates with the NRA about gun rights. Uh, Frank Smythe is the author of a new book, NRA, The Unauthorized History. So Frank, uh, is the NRA having a good plague? Uh, is this absence of mass killings, is that good for the NRA? What's good for the NRA, Andrew, is the fact that COVID-19 seems to have validated the ideology, which is based largely on myths that the NRA has been promoting now for more than four decades. The notion that you need a gun because there may be times when the government is not there to protect you, which is what a lot of gun activists in the United States now believe. The notion that you also need a gun to be able to defend yourself against your own government collectively to prevent the imposition of some sort of tyranny. And this is something that has really escalated. Some of the groups that you've seen protesting in Lansing, Michigan and other states, many of them are affiliated with various groups that are that are, call themselves three percenters, named after the alleged three percent of militia uh, Minutemen who fought in the Revolutionary War back in the in the uh, in the seventeen late seventeen hundreds, and um, these groups are starting to talk about the need to attack people that are threatening their Second Amendment rights or having discussions about whether or not that is justified yet. So the fact that we haven't seen any mass killings. Uh, during the pandemic is, of course, a good thing. But I'm afraid that as things open up, as the tension that's been building now continues to escalate, we may see more armed confrontations as well as potential uh, violent attacks in the future, uh, because this has also riled up a lot of lone wolves out there who are starting to see more enemies than they even saw before. Um, Frank, in your book, you note that in 2016, gun purchases peaked at 15.7 million units in response to the fear of Hillary Clinton becoming president and presumably clamping down on gun rights. Um, are we seeing the same peak in the purchase of guns during the pandemic? No, this is even more directly fear-based. We've had record gun sales in March and again in April, something the NRA has uh, all but boasted about on Twitter. And what this means is that with the lockdown coming, and there was a lot of people in the right 
among the armed right in the United States who are also very much influenced by conspiracy theories from people like InfoWars that have falsely promoted the notion that the Sandy Hook Newtown Connecticut massacre in 2012 was a hoax to people that are followers of QAnon, this sort of wild conspiracy theory that is that is really spreading uh, through the internet and among the ranks of many of these same people that are opposing uh, health measures. And I think what, what this is showing is the, just the notion of fear that people are afraid that we don't know what's coming next. Some people fear the end times are actually coming, as, as odd as that may sound to, to some of us. And, uh, and so they feel that they absolutely need firearms to be able to defend themselves. And there's also a fear, I think, which is based on, uh, on fantasy and, 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 and myth, but a fear that the government could somehow uh, turn tyrannical and try to re- repress people's rights, which is started, part of what you're seeing in the protests in states which have democratic, democratic governors who have imposed stay-at-home orders following White House guidance. But for people out there uh, in many states, they see this as the first step toward tyranny. In your book, Frank, you note that the NRA is America's strongest civic organization. I'm quoting you there. You're not an approver of this or a disapprover. You're simply you're making your point in, in terms of your history. You were also a gun owner, so you're not against gun rights in themselves. Uh, in your book, you do tell the story of the NRA as a very mainstream and sort of, in some ways, I guess, responsibly civic organization. Are you saying now, though, that it's become part of this shadow underground resistance against the authorities, uh, almost uh, an organization that on its fringes will attract terrorists? Well, first of all, the NRA for more than 100 years, for 106 years, actually, was an organization devoted toward marksmanship, toward preparing military forces as well as able-bodied civilians, uh, how to shoot better in anticipation of future wars, and an organization that also reached out and supported hunters at the same time in in the late 60s and early 70s that the NRA was actually as green as Sierra Club. So I think this is an incredibly admirable organization over most of its history. But in 1977, the NRA underwent what one of its former presidents called a a shift toward gun rights, where they embraced gun rights as their overwhelming or unyielding aim. And since then, the NRA has been the one that's been churning out the ideology, which was spoken uh, by President Trump himself last summer when he said they call it the slippery slope, a conversation he had after he spoke to Wayne LaPierre. The NRA has put out this notion that you can't have any, any, even a moderate form of gun control, even something as seemingly benign as background checks, can be a slippery slope to more gun control and ultimately the disarmament of the civilian population and then the imposition of some kind of tyranny. Now, every advanced nation besides the United States on Earth since World War II has imposed some form of gun control based on the notion of registering firearms to civilians to the degree that these same nations permit civilian use at all. And that one of these nations is degenerated into a tyrannical state. But the NRA has put out this ideology for, for a very long time, and now this ideology has caught flame. It started to catch fire uh, during the eight years of President Obama with the Tea Party, which was something the NRA was 
nominally aligned with but kept its distance from because they weren't sure how long it would last and it was too unpredictable. And the NRA is similarly keeping its distance from a lot of these armed protesters, but the, but members of the NRA, board members of the NRA, like, like Ted Nugent, have been out front supporting these same groups. And the NRA clearly supports the notion of carrying weapons, for instance, inside of a state capital in order to press one's point. What most of us would call acts of armed intimidation that would be illegal in almost any other country in the world, the NRA has, is the group that has laid the groundwork. The modern NRA, since the 77 revolt, over the past 43 years, is the one that has laid the groundwork for this kind of ideology, for this kind of behavior that is now really coming to a crescendo with COVID-19 and being encouraged by Trump. Because on the one hand, he, he suggests one should follow guidelines, then he doesn't wear a mask himself. And he's at the same time egging on these armed protests. And I think this is something, this is part of a plot, I think, or a, not a plot, but a plan. So when the elections occur, if Trump were to lose, as polls suggest now he would, but of course polls could be wrong. But if he were to lose the elections, it seems like he's already laying the groundwork to claim fraud and claim that the elections were stolen from him. And then these same groups that have come out uh, to protest around state capitals could come out to try and keep Trump in power. That's something that I think is uh, needs to be pointed out. And I think this level of intimidation is going to escalate as we get closer to November 3rd. Uh, Frank, you, you mentioned uh, Lapierre. La uh, Wayne Lapierre, of course, is the CEO of the NRA. In terms of this very radical shift in the NRA, um, can it be explained by uh, Lapierre himself? Because it seems to have happened uh, whilst he's been CEO. Well, the, the shift began in 77. Lapierre joined the NRA a year later. He had some experience working for a blue dog Democratic state representative in Virginia, uh, where he first worked on gun legislation. And then he was hired by the NRA. He then uh, bided his time. He, he led the effort to, to, uh, to pass a law in 1986 that rolled back uh, parts of an earlier law passed in 1968 uh, that expanded uh, access to guns throughout the nation. And he's been in power for the last 29 years. So LaPierre is not who radicalized the NRA. That was a man named Harlan Carter, who was the father of the Cincinnati revolt who LaPierre just recently referenced in last October in one of his columns, something he doesn't normally do because they try to keep uh, Harlan Carter's name under wraps because he, uh, one of the things that came out uh, once he took over the NRA is that when he was a youth, he shot and killed another youth and was convicted of murder, served time until he was later, the conviction was overturned on appeal. But uh, so the NRA has been, been radical longer than LaPierre, but LaPierre has kept it on a track and what LaPierre has also done, Andrew, is that he's been able to calibrate the message that the NRA has in the past had a different message that it oriented toward its base than what it oriented toward the public at large, speaking largely in code and in a more radical, uh, with a round radical resonance to his base, and then appearing more reasonable or trying to steer the conversation away from guns, look, saying things, well, we have to enforce the gun laws that already exist. Or this is not the time to politicize after a, a mass shooting, uh, this situation. He's been very good as a communicator to keep the NRA's legitimacy at the same time he's held on to the NRA's base. And that served him and the NRA very well. They spoke 
for the first time at a major party's uh, political national convention in 2016, at the same convention in Cleveland that nominated Trump uh, for president. And so the NRA, in a way, has gained more clout. But now we're starting to see groups coming out from the right of the NRA, more radical the NRA, uh, as a way of gaining influence, because the situation is getting so polarized in the United States that the NRA is associated more with the with the Trump-led conservative Republican Party. And some of the people in the sh- that are out there demonstrating see the NRA oddly as being somehow somehow not not strong enough, which is not which is not really accurate. But I think that's that's the feeling. And that's the level of polarization we're seeing now, including over COVID nineteen, but really over gun rights. Uh, Frank, you've you've painted a very chilling picture of America in late twenty twenty. If if the election goes wrong, you're suggesting we may be on the brink of civil war or civil uh, unrest, resistance, armed resistance against the election or against the authorities. Where is somebody like Wayne Lapierre and the board of the NRA on this? Are they fantasists of insurrection or are they just turning a blind eye to these uh, lunatic resistors? Well, there are certainly some people on the board that are fantasists of insurrection and would identify with these groups. Ted Nugent is the most is the most uh, vocal among them, but there are others uh, who have spoken out in favor of these armed protests. And there are other people on the board whose past, whose past comments on other matters uh, associated with uh, uh, right-wing tendencies in the United States, the English-only movement, for instance, that has been around for decades. People like that are on the NRA board. So there's certainly sympathy there. But the NRA also knows not to say things that'll come back on it, not to, because what their strength as an organization, as the strongest civic organization, as you quoted me saying in the book, comes from their ability to mobilize grassroots voters, right? More so, and I think in a more effective way than almost any other group in the country, to mobilize these voters to vote as the NRA deems uh, fit to promote gun rights, whether that's on a, on a city council level, a state level, or on the national level, Congress and for president. And um, the NRA also knows not to say things that are going to create trouble. So they only speak when they need to. And that's why they prefer not to speak as an organization after most mass shootings. Their statement after the Sandy Hook shooting in 2012 was about the first time the NRA ever came out so forthrightly and spoke. And they haven't said much as an organization about these armed protests, except to reaffirm the the rights that they interpret the Second Amendment gives to carry weapons like a 50 caliber uh, a sniper rifle or an AR-15 semi-automatic rifle uh, into into government buildings. So they are they're 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 being very cautious as they have always been. But I think this all of this uh, furthers their their overall agenda in terms of spreading uh, gun rights and spreading support for gun rights throughout the nation. How successfully has the NRA infiltrated? Uh, the police and the American military, or for that matter, vice versa. How closely connected is the NRA with uh, the American police and military? The NRA has a tremendous deal of support among your rural sheriffs in counties and states across the nation. And, and that's largely because many people that vote for these sheriffs, most of these are elected positions, are also tend to vote 
Republican intend, intend to vote uh, based partly or if not entirely on gun rights. I don't think the NRA has had that much influence in among the police. I think there are police who support the NRA and there are a great many who don't support the NRA. And there hasn't been any effective polling done of police officers done in a while that I'm aware of to indicate, indicate that. But the groups that have infiltrated police and military or that have active duty police to some degree, as well as a great many veterans of the recent Iraq and Afghanistan wars incorporated into the ranks are these three percenter groups, these three percenter militia, though they don't call themselves militia, uh, armed groups who train some of them every other weekend with live weapons. The training led often by veterans of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars who have, who have bona fide tactical skills. And there are uh, there's a lot of evidence uh, of, of police involvement as well as veterans that are involved in these same groups. And that is something to, to be concerned about because it shows that while some of the people protesting are overweight and look like they, you know, they, couldn't, uh, they don't have the capability of, of taking a hill in any kind of military operation, some of them, uh, especially some of the leaders in these groups, are people with very serious tactical skills who know how to train uh, other combatants. And those are the people that I'm concerned about uh, should things escalate uh, toward November 3rd, as I think is, is at this point quite likely. Alongside the tensions you're describing, there are, of course, increasingly uh, increasingly self-evident racial tensions in this country. They've been manifested in the last couple of weeks with several high-profile confrontations between uh, mostly African-American uh, citizens and, and the police. How does the racial pro profile of the NRA break down? I've always imagined everyone in it is white. Is that fair? That's not fair at the level of leadership. The, the organization is overwhelmingly white, and NRA conventions are, are whiter than even Republican Party national conventions, right? You don't see a lot of people of color on the floor, though sometimes I have seen groups of African-American men tend to be very buff, very, very fit, very muscular men wearing black T-shirts with white letters that read, Black Guns Matter, right? Uh, walking through uh, in Dallas, for instance, two years ago, about uh, a dozen at a time. There are also a number of African-Americans on the board of the NRA, although one African-American who was very popular uh, in gun rights circles, who was also uh, participated in a number of commercials, pro-NRA, I'm the NRA commercials in recent years, lost his bid for the board after he was nominated by the board's own nominating committee, uh, uh, a man named Robinson in, from Greensboro, North Carolina. And that was something of a surprise to the board, Mark Robinson, because the NRA leadership wanted him to get on the board because he was such a strong advocate of gun rights. And that shows that uh, the, the voting, the eligible voters and those who are active to vote, which is only 7% of the NRA's actual membership, tend to be more conservative uh, than, even, uh, than even the leadership. There, have, there are also very few Latinos uh, in the ranks of the NRA, either on the floor of conventions or, um, or in the leadership. Uh, there's uh, one or two uh, that have attempted to get on the board. There was one that they nominated from Puerto Rico, Antonio Hernandez, who was a competitive shooter. Uh, he had worked for the Romney campaign some years ago, but his bid, even though, again, he was supported by the nominating committee, also failed. So it's overwhelmingly white, but there is some representation of African-Americans in particular on the board, 
no efforts to try and broaden that and bring more minorities onto the board have have not been successful. Frank, I began this conversation on an optimistic note, no mass shootings, but you've actually painted an incredibly dark picture. Uh, very, very worrying for anyone who lives in America. Do we have any reason to be cheerful? Is there any evidence that um, that there are sane elements within the NRA that is rec that are recognizing that uh, we may be on the brink of some sort of civil war or unrest. Well, let me let me deal with the NRA. Right, there's the NRA was. There's no moderation in the NRA, and uh, I think one of the things the book documents, though it lets the readers draw their own conclusion, is that after the the Cincinnati revolt in '77, there were some scandals and infighting that occurred in the '80s, which eventually led to Lapierre being chosen to take over the organization, and he is. Uh, regardless of what one thinks of his politics, he is a master administrator and a master communicator, right? There's nobody uh, either in the nonprofit or corporate world who is a better CEO uh, necessarily than, than LaPierre is in ter- on his own terms. Uh, and in the 90s, there was a fight after LaPierre uh, took over the organization. He was challenged by the mid to late 90s, really the late 90s, by a man named Neil Knox, who was one of the original fathers, along with Harlan Carter, who I mentioned before. And Knox was constantly accusing others who, who of not being strong enough on gun rights, not being true on gun rights like he was, including LaPierre. And that really had the potential to shake up the organization. And LaPierre, most people don't realize this, but he recruited the actor Charlton Heston, which most people see as sort of a normal process within the NRA that wasn't normal. He recruited Charlton Heston because he needed somebody with the gravitas and the celebrity status of Heston, who still had gun rights credentials, to defeat Neil Knox by 1999, which is what occurred. Uh, when when LaPierre let, raised that rifle over his head in, in, Seattle, in 1999 in North Carolina and said, out of, out of my do- cold, dead hands, that famous quote, that was... That was a message to the public, but it was also a message within the NRA that, yes, LaPierre has prevailed, Knox has defeated, and gun rights is still intact. And since then, I have seen no evidence of any moderation within the NRA board or within the NRA itself. If there are challenges to the status quo with the NRA, now they, they are coming, there are glimpses of that coming more from the right, from people that are even more radical uh, than LaPierre. Uh, and the board has been. So the notion that we're going to have moderation emerge from the, within the NRA is, uh, is simply, in, in my view, never going to occur. Frank, finally, uh, as I said, you've, you've painted a very dark picture of the NRA. What other readings uh, might people uh, look at as, as we're all stuck inside to, to gain a kind of a, a broader perspective on this threat to law and this current of, 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 of gun violence, which seems to be increasingly uh, underpinning our democracy and challenging, perhaps even undermining our democracy? Well, you know, Andrew, there are a lot of myths floating around. And one of the things that the book attempts to do is to debunk those myths. So let me just lay some of them out. The NRA claims that they are, because I think truth will help us get through this, this, this dark period. 
The NRA claims that it is the, the, the nation's oldest civil rights organization. This is not true. The NRA had no position, took no position on gun rights for 50 years until after a New York state law in 1911 and the Bolshevik revolution in Russia in 1917, and then first articulated a clear position on gun rights in 1922. So 50, 51 years after they were established. The NRA didn't ra- bring, raise the Second Amendment or the right to keep and bear arms until the 50s, and then again didn't embrace gun rights as its unyielding aim until 1977. So this change is something we need to understand. The NRA of the past 43 years is not the NRA of the first 106 years. I understand that, Frank, uh, and people need to read your book, NRA, The Unauthorized History, for that. But my question was about other books to get a, a broader perspective on 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 uh, perhaps what some people call right wing radical pro violence movements in this country. Uh, the the book that I would recommend is Shadow Network: Media, Money, and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right by Ann Nelson, who I think you've had on the show. Ann is a tremendous scholar and also a, a dear colleague, but she has looked at the financing going back decades that has supported this, this right-wing movement that has really become ascendant now in the country and is really having its day. And uh, to understand the intricacies of that, to understand the strategies and the money and the source of that money and what's, and how they've developed this over time, I think Anne's book, Shadow Network, does a better job of anyone of really exploring that. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week. And thanks so much for listening.